The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Jesus is the speaker, John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also." And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's holy word. I think you would agree with me that relatively few people in this world live with a delight to be obnoxious or offensive to others. Most of us try to get along and not necessarily make waves, and if we get somebody upset, it's because we thought we were doing the right thing. Maybe there are a few people who deliberately court offensiveness, but not too many. But try as we might, we cannot ignore the fact that many unbelieving, critical minds believe that Christianity represents real offenses to them. And I think that possibly the Mount Everest of all hateful and provocative ideas in those minds are spoken by Jesus here in John 14 and verse 6. For they would tell us that Christianity's master offense comes from Christ himself when he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. If a poll was taken in the broad non-Christian public, what most offends you from the Bible? I think people who didn't know John and couldn't tell you John 14, 6 would say, I think it was that part when Jesus said he was the only way One opponent wrote, not long ago, I quote exactly what he said, quote, Christians are narrow, uncompromising, ornery, militant, I've actually met some of these, and invincibly self-righteous. He said, they actually believe the only way into a final heaven is through their concept of Jesus as God on earth. This smug, superior, hate speech of theirs is worse in my mind than the most arrogant forms of racism you will ever witness. Well, you may not like that, but that's what one person and probably quite a few others think about the offense of one way to God. 
postmodern so-called unbelievers in our day claim that they will tolerate almost everything, and they show it by tolerating almost everything. But they won't tolerate this form of biblical Christianity. The very idea that Jesus Christ alone will eternally save those who consciously trust in Him as Lord grievously offends the crowd who would say, oh, my mind is open to everything. Well, it is open to everything, everything except God's truth. But yet we find that Jesus specified this, and he said that alternatives to him as ways to God are dead ends that lead nowhere. Now here in John 14, 6, we meet number six out of seven sayings in John that are peculiar to this gospel, the I am sayings of Jesus. Just reminding you what those are. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Now this one, number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you're anxious for the last, just glance across your page. 15.1, I am the true vine will be the seventh. Now, it's very important that we hear what Jesus is saying here, even in its grammatical statement. I mentioned a little earlier in an announcement about a car, all right? I've gotten a different car in the last few months. Suppose I was talking with you and I said, my Honda is a great automobile. Well, that probably wouldn't cause you any controversy or offense because I said it is a great automobile. And if you're a a stalwart defender of Fords or Oldsmobiles, which are no more, or some other form of car, you could still say, well, mine is also a great automobile, and I haven't vaunted myself above you. But suppose I said, my Honda is the greatest automobile that has ever been made anywhere in the world in the history of automobiles. Now we'd have a controversy, wouldn't we? Because you'd be sure to tell me, no, no, it's Ford, it's Cadillac, it's Mercedes, it's Lexus, it's something else. Somebody would even come and say, it it was my 1952 Studebaker or something like that. Because I have used the definite article in English grammar, T-H-E, the best And let me tell you, the translators have not simply inserted into the English translation of John 14, 6, the truth, the life, the way. It's there in the original language. It's very deliberate. This is what Jesus exactly said. He was claiming by the use of the definite article, exclusivity, excluding other things that are not equal to himself. There's no escaping the fact that he meant to say it this way. He meant to be exclusive. He is a singular way, an exclusive truth, and he gives a life like no other. You don't have to apologize for Jesus and say, well, I don't think he meant to be understood that way. He did mean to be understood this way. And you cannot water down his words just to please other people who say, well, that sounds awfully rude to me. Jesus knew that all of humanity needs to find God's way because we are alienated from God and we've lost our way. He also knew that we are ignorant of the very basis of divine truth, and we need to know divine truth to know God. 
and he knew that we are condemned to spiritual death if we continue the way we're naturally born to go in. So he comes and says, I can tell you the way, the truth, and the life. And it will fit your exact requirements, but you won't find it in anyone else. Let's explore these great claims of Christ this morning. First of all, Jesus alone is the way of reconciliation to God. Now, in order to admit that, you have to admit that you need to be reconciled to God, and you are not reconciled to God apart from Him. And, of course, that's a problem right there because a lot of people don't even know that. They think, well, I'm about as, you know, high in my standing in the sight of God as any other person in this world. I'm trying hard. I'm, I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments. I try to go to church. I try to be faithful to my wife and family and so on. I, I think I'm doing okay. I'm not… God doesn't reject me. In our new members class, we have a fundamental class which is called the bad news and the great news. That class is the fundamental summary of the biblical gospel, and its first goal is to tell people there's bad news. As you are born into this world, you are not right with God. You are not one with Him. You are not destined for eternal heavenly glory. And you need to understand this and face in the way in which Scripture says you've gone astray. Then you can discover the great good news of reconciliation and justification in Christ. Now, let's remember that this discussion in our text comes from Jesus telling His 11 disciples that He was headed for His Father's heavenly home. His cross and what would follow His resurrection and so on would take Him to the dwelling of God in heaven. And He assured people that was their true home, and they would come there too because He would see that they were escorted there and brought there. And so he ventures even to say, and I think he was being provocative in verse 4, he probably wanted to provoke this very comment from Thomas, who was the skeptical guy who was bound to say something like this. And he said, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas right away said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this place. How can I know the way there? And of course, this gave Jesus the entree to say, what he did. But the realization has to be there that without what Christ comes to provide, you're not going to make this destination, this heavenly home. Go to a place like Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.12 says, all men have turned aside from God's way. By the way, Romans 3 is a great diagnosis of the lost condition, and it's a, it's a universal diagnosis where Paul says, look, this is where all humanity is. They've lost their way in verse 12. Then Romans 3.23, a great verse, says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You might be trying to reach God, but you're falling short. Your need is to be reconciled, and it won't come by trying harder or turning over a new leaf. And so Christianity scandalizes and upsets people 
bringing them this bad news. I remember reading in a biography of George Whitfield, the great British evangelist, that he was preaching once as the, the guest. Now, this is in the 1700s. And he was on the guest, a guest at a great estate, and, and all of the aristocratic friends of this estate owner, some of them dukes and duchesses and earls and whatever, they were people who were at the very top of society, who were the pinnacle of society, rich and powerful and owning everything and able to give commands to hundreds of people. And Whitfield was preaching about sin, and a woman approached him, a duchess approached him afterwards and said, why, sir! I am simply scandalized. I almost think you meant to say that I am a sinner. Well, she almost got it. But if it was only almost, she didn't get it. The New Testament gospel says you indeed can be reconciled to God, but it is it will be as God initiates a change of heart to cause you to repent, to recognize you've lost your way, and then you can come from Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short, to Romans 3.24 that says you can be justified by the grace of God as a gift. I heard of a woman who visited the White House in Washington, and she got a private tour of the White House. Now, Many of you have probably taken the public tour, and you know you go through certain half-dozen rooms. But, of course, there are many things you don't see. Well, this woman happened to have as her best friend a presidential staff assistant. So she got the -the behind-the-scenes, more complete tour from her friend. And, in fact, it so happened that the president was out of town, and so the aide, the staff member, had checked and was given permission to take her friend even into the Oval Office. I guarantee you the tour doesn't go there. And they went in and, of course, looked around, didn't dare touch anything. Oh, this is the president's office, the inner chamber. Now think for a minute. If that woman had maybe been on the public tour and just broke away from the tour and said, I'm going to see the Oval Office. I don't care what they say. I'm going in there. And she found the right door. I believe they have either a Marine or a Secret Service, I'm not sure which, one or both, at the doors. You don't just go and knock and say, are you in there, Prez, you know? But suppose she tried to force her way in to the Oval Office. You know what would happen. She would be grabbed, thrown down, arrested. If she pulled a gun and said, I'm going in anyway, she'd be shot. She was not authorized, but with the right mediator. She was able to go in and check out the drapes and everything else in the Oval Office. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door of my sheep. If anyone enters via me, he will be saved. Peter said it. Peter, who was here and listening in in John 14, later on said in a sermon in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Oh, there are a lot of great thinkers, a lot of great leaders who've given things of much benefit. Moses, of course, used of God to bring the commandments, the law of God, and that law of God is wonderful, even though it doesn't save us. Paul said the law leads us right up to Christ. Well, there are other religious leaders that have certainly been influential. Muhammad, Astonishing what Muhammad did hundreds of years 
after Christ. He came after, you know, not before. Some people seem to think Islam is older than Christianity. That's not true. It's actually a, an offshoot of false Christianity. But Muhammad came along and largely by the use of a bloody sword influenced tens of thousands to follow him and call him great. Buddha has millions who think he is the wisest one ever. But Muhammad nor Buddha, either one nor any other great leader, religious or otherwise, ever said, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Through me will come a righteousness, a reconciliation with God that will make you right. And so human beings are all out there pursuing all their different… I like to think of religion as ladders that human beings stick up in the… And, you know, they think you could stick a ladder in the sky and it somehow will rest on something and then you can climb up. And even if you climbed all the way up, you look and see, wait a minute, the sky is still a lot higher away from me than it was when I started climbing. There's so many ways by religion that men and women try to climb to God. But Proverbs 14:12 has that ringing assurance to us that there is always a way that seems right to a man but the end of it is death. Jesus alone is the way of reconciliation to God. But secondly, we come to this. Jesus is the one true revelation of God, true revelation of God. Throughout this gospel, he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm here to bring you the Father's words. I do nothing but what the Father tells me. He's the true revelation of God. And so he says here, I am the truth. Now, I believe he's saying that he is the root and trunk and branches of all objective, what we call propositional truth in this world. The idea that we can say things that are right and in conformity with reality, and they help us define reality and also tell us what is false. And that happens in the Word of God and in Christ himself. For many centuries, philosophers have used laws of logic, and this isn't just in Western thinking. Eastern thinking as well is familiar with the subject of logic. I'm sure some of you have studied logic in college, and you, you come up with different basic principles. One of them that's very fundamental, it's almost the first you learn, is the law of non-contradiction. Now, stay with me on this. It's really not too hard. You'll You'll, you'll learn some college-level material here in just the next two minutes. The law of, co- of non-contradiction, simply put, means if I say A equals B, then I cannot turn around the next moment and say A is not B, because those are contradictory statements, and they can't exist together. One of them is true. One of them is not true. Aristotle stated the law of non-contradiction in a simple sentence. He said, the most certain of all basic principles is that contradictory propositions are not true simultaneously. Now, that sounds pretty easy, right? You say, sure, I like that. That, that works. Why am I bringing this up today when we talk about Christ as the truth? Well, because in our world today, logic is no longer the servant of knowledge or the servant of truth. I like the fact that Francis Schaeffer a generation ago spoke about true truth. That sounds like something unnecessary to say, but he was saying there is truth that is 
true because it's universally rooted in the personality and the wisdom and the truth of God himself. And then, of course, there's that which is false. Now, it's been the intellectual fashion for quite a few years now, in, especially in great universities, but in many other places, to say there's no objective truth. There's no propositional truth. Listen, parents, you know, when you're lining Johnny or, or June up for the college entrance and you say, boy, I really want to, I'm not going to pick on these universities, but I really want to get her into Yale or Stanford or Harvard or Duke, all good places in their own right, all places where I don't even know. I'm sure they're at least seventy-five dollars to $90,000 a year now. Think of the student loans. And you say, wow, Johnny could have a Yale degree. Think of where he can go. Let me tell you what Johnny will face in his Western civilization orientation class as a freshman at any of those schools plus dozens of others with prestigious names. He'll face some professor who will immediately try to destroy the idea of propositional objective truth. There's no such thing. It's your opinion. It's your idea. It's your narrative. Oh, that's a nice way to talk about it. Your narrative. And they say, we all live by a narrative. It doesn't have to be true for the next person if it's true for you. Well, let me tell you, the great lie of Satan that infects our society and our universities today started in Genesis 3 when a being called a serpent, the serpent, actually, the master serpent, who was not a snake, he was a being who was lovely and enticing, that being whispered to Eve, did God really say that? Come on now. Let me tell you, that serpent will show up in freshman orientation to Western civilization and all the great universities of our country. Did God really say that? And we're told, well, you can, you can say almost anything. You can live by any narrative you want to live by. And what we have are people living by things that are absolutely contradictory. And it's like a mad hatter's house of mirrors. Nobody knows where they are anymore. Point in fact, I'm not picking on this, it just perfectly illustrates it. We have the current absurdity of a famous personality today getting all kinds of TV time about whom we could state a proposition. Bruce is a man. Bruce was born with Y chromosomes in every cell of his body, which women do not have. Now, Bruce has decided Bruce wants to be a woman. So surgeons have done their job, and hormones have done their job, and Bruce is now artistically sculpted to look womanish and is addressed as she, but Bruce is still a man. He can't take the Y chromosomes out of the cells of his body. Only men possess those. You can't wish yourself in the same life to say A equals B and A does not equal B. And those who would deny this objective, logical principle of truth versus falsehood, I love to refer them to a Persian philosopher, okay? This is not a Western or Greek or American or European person, a Persian philosopher of wisdom, a man named Avicenna. You probably never heard of him. I love this quote. Avicenna said, anyone who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits 
that to be beaten is not the same as not being beaten. (laughs) And being burned is not the same as not being burned. Did he make his point? Logic has got to come in again because it relates to the truth of God, ladies and gentlemen. And Jesus was telling us that the wisdom expressed in laws of logic are embodied in a person, not a philosophy or a system, a person himself. He was bringing out what Colossians 2, 3 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or the truth of what John 8, 31 previously said as we studied this gospel, that you can know the truth that he presents and that truth will set you free. It will set your mind free. You won't be in this world like the Mad Hatter who graduated from Harvard who doesn't know truth from falsehood. You can know the truth of God in Christ, and the truth will set you free. Well, quickly, in the third place, we come to these third declaration. I am the life. Jesus is the regenerating life of God. That's already been said in this gospel. 1-4, in him was life, and the life is the light of men. John 5-24, He that believes in the Son has passed out of death into life. John 3, 36, whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God will abide on him. He's saying, you can be alive, you can be walking around, you can be a marvelous physical specimen, all your muscles toned and your abs tight, and and boy, you know, maybe you're pretty smart. And spiritually, you're not alive. Spiritually, you live with self as the center of your universe. You're out of touch with anything eternal. And you will not see anything eternal. You haven't even tasted the eternal sense of the word life in the way that God gives it when he brings a soul alive to see Christ and to come to him and ask for that life which is eternal. Think of the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You all know that story, I trust. Remember, he looked for his son to come back, and the foolish son that squandered the fortune came back, dragging his tail, ready to plead, please let me sleep in the corner of the barn. I don't deserve anything. And the father said, bring the fatted calf, bring the robe, bring the ring, let's have a dinner. And what was his declaration? He said, this my son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. Do you understand that God wants to declare that about you? This, my daughter, was dead in her trespasses and sins. Now she's bowed at the feet of Jesus Christ and and sought that thing that she couldn't satisfy. But now she's alive. Wonderful. God wants to say that about you. And so I bring this to a conclusion here, and we see in verse, the end of verse 6, how Jesus wraps up these three I am propositions. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and concludes saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, yes, it's specific. Yes, it's exclusionary. Guess what? Your phone number is exclusionary. Aren't you glad it is? Aren't you glad when you dial your wife or your husband or your best friend that it's an exclusive number, that it connects you to them? If it wasn't exclusive, it wouldn't be any good to you. Guess what? Your computer passcode is exclusionary. 
It allows only you to access the data on your computer. Jesus said, I have to be exclusionary to have this access to God. I'm not going to offer apologies to the cult gurus, the religious mystics, the false Christs who lead people nowhere. I'm not sorry that I have shut them out of your understanding. I mean to shut them out. And in fact, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, was actually speaking in Paul in Galatians 1. When Paul said one of the most maybe crude-sounding things that he ever said, one of the most harsh things he ever said, Galatians 1.8, he was talking about false teachers who claimed to have gospels, so-called. And he said, even if an angel from heaven preaches to you a gospel contrary to ours, do you remember what he said? Let him be accursed. And I'm told if we brought out the fullest strength of the language, the original language, it would probably really offend everybody because Paul was really saying, let him be damned to hell. There's no other gospel. Let's not even pretend to be kind to any other gospel. But still people wail and say, oh, that Jesus. Oh, those Christians, they're so narrow. How dare they be so restrictive? Jesus Christ is specific, restrictive, and exclusionary because he possesses the only key to the eternal dwelling of God. Think for a minute an imaginary situation. If you were at an ocean beach that was fairly deserted and you suddenly found yourself caught by an undertow pulling you out to sea and in panic you scan the beach and think, who in the world is going to help me? There's no crowd here. I'm yelling. I'm crying out. And suddenly, in answer to your cry, a lifeguard appears running your way, splashing through the shallow waters, and he has a life ring and, and a rope tied to that, and he gets out as close to you as he can, and he tosses the ring and holds the rope, and you grab the ring, and he pulls you in. Do you suppose that lifeguard would apologize to you and say, gee, I'm sorry, sir, that I was the only lifeguard here today? I'm, I'm just a trainee after all, and uh, I'm sorry that one of the real experienced lifeguards wasn't here to save your life, or that five or ten other lifeguards were What a stupid thing. He wouldn't say anything like that. In fact, he wouldn't get a word in edgewise because you'd be pouring out your thanks. Thank you for saving my life. You realize that in the book of Acts, the first name for Christians is given, and it isn't well, it's mentioned that people were first called Christians at Antioch, but the more common name before they were called Christians is in the book of Acts a half a dozen times. They were called people of the way. Weren't they just echoing what Jesus was saying here? I am the way. I think it'd be great if we were called people of the way. Maybe we would remember what our Lord said in Matthew seven thirteen: Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter that way are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, few doesn't mean two or three. It means, relatively speaking, out of the billions and billions and billions, there are fewer billions who find the way of Christ. 
But let there be no doubt, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And if that offends you, so be it. Our Father, we pray that we would be able to glory in this. A Savior who is as narrow and specific as our phone number. A Savior who alone has the privileged access of the doorway of heaven and who can take us there. He promises us. He says, would I have told you this if it was a lie? Father, it's hard for people of the world to hear this. I pray that we might represent this truth in ways that are strong and yet gracious. We might somehow try to understand those who are offended May your gospel go forth. May your people be preserved as we trust in this one and only Savior, Jesus our Lord. Amen.